Congregation, as you're having a seat today, I want to remind you that we remember the crucifixion and we celebrate the resurrection. Amen? Amen. It's great to have a little cross. It's fantastic because it reminds us of the fact that every day we live a life that is sacrifice, live a life remembering what Jesus did for us. And we would probably all wear a different trinket that looked like an open tomb if, if there was a cool graphic for that. But we don't quite have that graphic. But I would encourage you to constantly remember that the cross points to the tomb. And it's the empty tomb that makes Easter so special. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to approach things uh, in a format we do at Community Church all the time, and it, it's like this. We're going to ask, what, so what, and now what? First of all, I want to say this. Easter changes everything, absolutely everything about human history, about your life, about where we are today. All of it hinges on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes absolutely everything. So what is that resurrection? Uh, so what, is, what does that mean? And now what are you going to do with it? That's how we're going to look at it today. So if you're a note taker, you got your little note page there. That's what I'd put. What? So what? Now what? What? What about Jesus makes him worth believing? So if, if we ask this question honestly, in our day and age where we have great scientific minds and the ability to, to, to graph archaeology and, and history and sociology and anthropology, pull them all together and say, is there really a historic Jesus and what is his impact on mankind? Here's some things we can do. We can look back and say for a fact that there have been great world leaders who have impacted their world and that many of them claimed to be God or to be messengers of God. If we go back into Mesoamerica, uh, into the Incan uh, civilization, we'd talk about Pachuchi. And one of the things that Pachuti or Pachuti did, he created an empire that was 2,500 miles long. In the ancient Andes and in what we call Peru today, the Incan Empire under him was the largest empire the Mesoamericans had ever seen. And it was led by a group of less than 400 people with an army of only 10 to 40,000 to control an empire that large. He was seen as a god. They built a city to him. You know it is Machu Picchu. But that particular city was built to, to celebrate his deity-ness. And this is how they saw it. But here's the thing I can guarantee today. If you go to try to find Pachuti's tomb, here's what you're going to find. That, that time has ravaged it. That looters have emptied it. His bones are long gone. And there's no sign of him. And nobody worships him today as God. Turns out he was just a guy who was really good at organization. And he's gone. And so his impact in world history, even though they said he was God, is, is questionable. How about Alexander the Great? That great king of, of, of Macedonia, he, he conquered much of the known world. All around the, in the world, there are cities named after him, Alexandria. And all of these, these great places that he established, people called him God. They built statues to him and worshipped him as a god. But the reality is, he's dead and gone. Can you find his tomb today? Turns out, no. There's no way to be able to say he really was God because he died and he stayed dead. How about the Roman Caesars? Every one of those Caesars called themselves God. They established temples for themselves, told people to worship them upon penalty of death. The coins had, hail Caesar, see Caesar is God. Give your allegiance to Caesar, worship Caesar. You could go uh, to the Giza Plateau and see the great pyramids of Khufu and others, and you could say they were gods to their people. They were seen as deity alive on earth, but they died. And what's left are empty tombs today. 
Muhammad claimed to be the prophet of God and, and the world history's greatest murder machine was established as a religion that would force compliance by the edge of the sword to their form. And although it may be one of the largest religions in the world, the fact is its establisher, the one who put it in place, is dead and gone. You can go to his grave and visit and say he lived and now he's dead. He's no longer here. But here's the difference about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died an innocent death. He was genuinely dead. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb every bit alive. And he's not dead. He's alive today. So here's the thing. Either it's true or it's false. But Jesus said it would happen before he ever died. He was saying it was going to take place as far back as in the Old Testament. So one of these three things has to happen. You've heard it before. Either he was a lunatic, a liar, or he really is Lord. And you have to make that decision. So the what we're talking about today is this. Jesus claimed to be God. And the what is that he lived a perfect life, died a death, and rose again, resurrected on that third day. Now, let's talk about what is resurrection, because I think when we talk about things, we need to define them. You have to make a decision based upon what Scripture claims that resurrection is. And so there's three ways that Scripture speaks of the word resurrection. Number one is this. It's, it refers to the miraculous raising of the dead back to earthly life that Jesus did. In other words, during his earthly ministry, he raised a, a person who, Jairus' daughter, back to life, Lazarus and Eutychus. He raised these people from the dead back to life. They had been dead for days or moments, or hours, but they were dead. Not asleep, not fainted, not had a virus. They were dead, and he brought them back to life. Not a near-death experience, a death experience. Return to life. And Jesus did this, so that was resurrecting from the dead. The next way the Bible speaks of it, it refers to the resurrection of people at the end of time for punishment or reward. Now think about that. The resurrection will happen to all of us. Now, here's a test. We get to stretch for just a second. How many of you are alive? You get to do this. You can raise your hand. Okay. Everybody's in for the most part. Excellent. If the person next to you did not raise their hand, you might want to move down a seat. How many of you are going to die someday? An equal number of hands will go up. Science has proven, okay, through much testing across time, that there is a 100% chance that you're going to die someday. That's how it works. You live, you die. But what Scripture tells us is this. All human beings are going to be resurrected. And you're going to stand before one of two great thrones at the end of time. Either the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. And in one of those two places, you will stand before Jesus and you will confess with your mouth as you take your knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you'll say it to the glory and to the honor of God next to him. The bitter part of that is that most people who are going to find themselves in that position are going to be there at a moment of horror. And they're going to realize the thing I worshiped was false. The God I thought was real, that my tribe taught me, that those priests taught me, that that nation forced upon me, the only truth I ever heard was a false one. And that ought to horrify and motivate every single Christian alive to get out and tell people about the truth of Jesus Christ. 
Because as, as much as is possible with you, no one should ever die having not heard the gospel of Jesus. But the second group of people who will find themselves resurrected here are going to be those who died knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And for them, this is going to be a moment of incredible exhilaration and fulfillment and affirmation and confirmation and maybe even some vindication as you're going to stand and realize or kneel and realize you are the Jesus that I worshiped. It was right. You, you brought me to peace. I knew it. I already know you have been in a relationship with you. All of us will be resurrected, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to spend our eternity in the presence and in the peace with God and his new heaven and his new earth, or you're going to be sent away into eternal darkness and destruction in eternal punishment for having rejected him. Now that's another what. You see, the what is Jesus came because that is truth. And he wanted you to be able to hear truth and have a way to be at peace with God. So that's that second resurrection. But the third one, the third term that we see is what we're talking about today. And that resurrection refers to Jesus Christ's resurrection himself on Easter Sunday morning. The reason that Christians around the world have for 2,000 years gathered on Sundays to celebrate the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' resurrection. We saw it in the early church as early as the middle of the first century. They began to worship on Sundays rather than the Jewish Sabbath. And they were celebrating the day of their Lord, the day of his resurrection. So let's see what Jesus said about resurrection then, since the third one is the one we're focusing on. What did he say about it as we look at our what? So what about Jesus makes him worth believing? Let's start here. In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, we read this, an encounter of Jesus with some of the religious pharisaical Jews. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Reacting, the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. In the book of Matthew, we encounter this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, That's Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So that sign of Jonah was the sign that they got. So what we're seeing is that so far, the resurrection of Jesus was something he predicted, and he even demonstrated that in the Old Testament, the symbolism from it the, the, the sign of it, the pattern of it had already been established. And what he's saying is, I've been in control of history all along. So what's going to happen is going to happen by my will, not by yours. So resurrection point number three comes from Matthew chapter 27. Now it's going to say, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember, this is about Jesus now, when he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, so that the deception will be worse than the first. So Jesus claimed and predicted his resurrection, but did it really happen? 
You see, the what is the resurrection. What about him makes him worth believing? Well, we've looked at the people, uh, sorry, we've looked at what the term resurrection means. We've looked at the fact that he predicted that it would happen. Now what I want to do is let me ask you a question that just has to do with basic logic. The largest religion in the world is, I'm sorry, do you think it was a trick question? Let's try it again. The answer is Christianity. <clears throat> okay. The largest religion in the world is? Okay. There is such a thing as group hysteria that happens from time to time, right? A bunch of people think they saw a UFO and, oh, we're certain it was a UFO and find out later it was just a plane that crashed, but we thought it was. And, and we tell each other enough we thought it was. A, and, and so there's a place for mass hysteria. But let's ask a question. If there are in the world right now somewhere around three, two and a half to three, two, two and three quarters billion Christians, and going back across history from today all the way back 2,000 years, we're talking tens of billions of people have come to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not one that's just a religious one, but one where they have prayed, one where they have been impacted, one where they've seen miraculous things happen, and they've had a personal relationship that changed their worldview, the way they interact with one another, the way that they build upon their life and, and live towards their eternity. They've been transformed by, by something, not just a religion, but by a relationship. We also see that kingdoms have risen and fallen and Christianity has remained. We've seen that by the best efforts of the Romans, uh, of other civilizations that have come, they've tried to destroy Christianity as best they possibly could. Yet it doesn't go away. Not, not like the Pharaohs, not like the, the cult religions of, of, the, of the, the Caesars like we looked at, not like the cult religions of, of this ruler or that ruler or this czar or this king, but this goes on and on and on and on, and it continues to be affirmed generation after generation. The scripture that, he's, that he put into place, the words that he spoke continue to be proven, proven across history. So there's a little phrase that says this. It's called uh, the phrase or a technique or, or a principle called inference to the best explanation. The best explanation of the fact that Christianity's, uh, of, of its persistence, of its accuracy, of its consistency over 2,000 years, and the consistency of the book that we call the Bible and our adherence to it and the way it continues to prove itself, the simplest solution of all is that it's truth. And it really is the truth of what happened. Because here's what I can guarantee you for absolute certainty. Human nature never changes. Would you agree? It's not a trick question. It's a straight-up statement, and I wonder if we agree. Human nature, that big, broad-brush thing, it doesn't change. People are people, no matter where you go. I think somebody wrote a song in the 80s about it, Depeche Mode or others. But, but let's go back and let me... Oh, right, six if you knew it. Okay, so let's go back and let me ask you this. If you took people, a baby, born in the year 1 CE, AD, however you like to do it. If, if you were born in that year, you took that baby. Let's say you took 10 of them. And you picked them up out of that year and you put them in your magic Doctor Who time machine. You brought them to the 21st century and you raised them up in our culture today. Would they be just as smart, just as intelligent, just as adapting, uh, just as communicative, just as creative, and still have human nature just like we do today? Yeah. Is there anything dramatically different about them other than the lack of electricity and Macintosh computers? Right? There's still primitive people among us who use PCs, Right? And back then, you could still go back then and you could still take people. And they were primitive because what was provided to them. But their nature 
from Adam and Eve to you and me is still human nature. And here's what I know about human nature, okay? Human beings are not going to die for a lie for long. You may get a few nuts to go down with, you know, down to Guyana and die for a lunatic. You, you might get some to die for a cause here or there, but false causes always fall apart. Okay? And here's what I know about those disciples who are following Jesus. When it looked bad, all 11 of them cut and ran for the hills. They took off, only to come back later and be completely transformed in their way of behaving and believing by something. What makes people willing to die for something? They genuinely believe it to be the truth. And if you walk with somebody and you know somebody personally for a matter of years, you're not going to be tricked. And you're not going to die for a lie connected to somebody who you just ran away from a few days earlier. You tracking with me? So let's take a look at what they had to say. It was Thomas in the book of John who said, I don't believe that he's resurrected. I don't believe it happened until I see his hands and I see the hole in his side. So in John chapter 20, we have the account of Jesus appearing and Thomas is there and Thomas touches his hands and he touches his side and he falls down in worship. He says, truly, truly, it's you. Thomas was convinced and Thomas was a skeptic. How about the road to Emmaus? Some disciples who weren't necessarily part of that inner 12 that had followed Jesus, but people who had heard his message, they were familiar with the Messiah. They were familiar with Jesus' teaching. They'd been in Jerusalem and seen all of this stuff take place. And Jesus has been executed as far as they know. He's in the grave. They've heard about resurrection, but they're not sure. And they're, they're walking back to their hometown in Emmaus. And Jesus appears and walks alongside of them, and he talks with them, and they ask questions, and he gives them answers. And he tells them the whole story of his life and his ministry, how the Old Testament had predicted it, and what had happened as he goes all the way through it. Finally, they get to the place they need to stay, and they invite him in for dinner, and Jesus sits down with him, and they still haven't recognized him yet. That happens sometimes if you're not necessarily particularly close with a person. Don't spend really intimate time. You might not quite recognize them. But suddenly Jesus does something that instantly their eyes are open. They knew exactly who he is. He broke the bread just the way Jesus did. And here's what they said. They said, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? They realized right away, oh my gosh, that really is Jesus. People who had reason to be skeptical. And then the apostle Paul would say, for I delivered to you first what, was also what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And as Paul goes on, he says that over 500 people had seen him. Now here's the thing. You can lie but you can always get caught in a lie. You hear me, right? You can't tell a lie about something that happened when there were 500 people around who all saw it happen. You can't lie to them. They're going to go, no, that's not how it happened. And they're going to correct you. And over 500 people who were still alive when Paul was writing his epistles had seen Jesus alive. And if Paul was lying, they'd have called him out on it. Listen, folks, history, the Bible, the Christian tradition and the miraculous works of Jesus all combine to tell us that that what, what is that Jesus walked out of that grave on the third day. And what makes him worth believing is the historic fact that he predicted and then accomplished his resurrection from the dead. So our next question is this, so what? 
what? We know. We know there's a resurrection, but so what? What do you do with that? Well, there's several things that I'm going to ask you to do with it. So what does it mean? His resurrection provides proof that he is the Savior of the world, just like he claimed. Next, we would say, so what? Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from the guilt and eternal penalty of every sin. Now, let's do this. How many of you who raised your hand earlier and said you were alive, that was, that was most of you, right? How many of you understand that sin is doing something contrary to God's design or God's will? Would you agree that's a good definition of sin? Can we do it? In agreement? Okay, no, no marked disagreement there. All right, okay. How many of you have ever sinned? Okay, got him up there. Eddie Burley's hand went up just like that. It was the quickest thing I've ever seen. You get like a prize for that, boss. But listen, we've all sinned, right? We have, the scripture tells us we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God has a perfect will and you've done something other than that, you have sinned. And if you have sinned, do you know what that makes you? a sinner. That's who you are. That's what human beings are. So if you are a sinner, you need a savior. You need a savior who has the power to forgive sin and to overcome it. And that is what Jesus is. Because of his resurrection, he has provided the ability for you through him to be made right with God. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. And that statement claims by him to be the source of both life and resurrection. There is no resurrection apart from Christ, no eternal life. Jesus does more than give life. He is life. And that's why death has no power over him. That's the so what. He comes out of the grave. What does that mean? So what? If he can come out of the grave on his own power, he has power over death. Did Lazarus have power over death? Wait, don't answer. Think. Did Lazarus have power over death? Who had power over death? Jesus. Because who called him out of that tomb? Jesus is the one that had the power over death. How about, how about Eutychus? Eutychus? How about Jairus' daughter? It's Jesus had the power to give life back. Who brought Jesus out of the tomb? Jesus, because Jesus has power over death because he is God. Next, so what? Jesus confers his life on those who trust in him so we can share his triumph over death. He, we who believe in Jesus Christ will personally experience resurrection because... Having the life Jesus gives, we overcome death. It is impossible for death to eventually claim our souls. So that's the great so what. Now, let's talk about a biblical, big Bible, theological word. You've heard it, but we need to define it. And that word is atonement. Here's how you remember atonement. We're all going to say at one moment. All right, somebody say at one moment. We'll try again. You ready? You got it. See, you're very smart. You're theologians now. And when you say atonement, what you're saying is this. I am at one with God. It's because of something. I'm at one with God. Going from a peace, from being uh, from um, um, a place of no peace with God, being at enmity is the, is the word scripture used, which means we have strife, division between us. You've gone from that to being at one, united, back at a place of peace. And so there has to be something that brings that there. There's an act that brings man and God back together. It's an act of atonement. Have you ever been um, at odds with a spouse? Don't raise hands right now because it could get awkward. Uh, a spouse, a neighbor, a neighbor, a friend, uh, a boss. You've had those times in your life where you're at enmity. You've got strife and division between you and another person. If you've lived long enough, this has happened in your life. It's painful, isn't it? 
Because a relationship that was once there is now broken. Atonement means it's been brought back together and you're at one again. And what Jesus has done, his act of sacrifice and resurrection has made atonement for your sin and brought you back into a relationship with God, which means there's no more need, Christian, for a guilty soul. There's no more need, Christian, to be at shame. There's no more need to fear God as of, oh, I'm afraid that, you know, that God will catch me and get me caught here. I'm afraid he's a mean, monstrous ogre. No, no. You don't have to worry about the afterlife. There's no dread of failures or inadequate good. There's people who actually believe. This is amazing to me. They believe that somewhere up in the heavens, there's God who, who has a scale, and he looks lot like that lady justice and maybe he's gold and he's got a blindfold on and he's got this scale and he's up there and he's weighing your good deeds against your bad and man if if that scale is tipped just one degree in the wrong direction you slide for eternity into hell and if it's tipped in just the right direction you you slide eek as it were into heaven for eternity and so up there you have to believe if this is what you think that god's up there and he's got it and the day's going to come when he's going to go okay got your works we've measured them there's exactly one thousand and one works you did, and we're going to measure. We've got 500 on this side. Uh-oh. 501. Go to hell. But people believe that. They think somehow that's eternity, and that's how God's going to judge you. Can I, can I give you a little insight? You ready? That is nonsense. You cannot possibly earn your way into heaven. Are you as good as God? You're so good, so amazing that God's going to go, wow, you know, I wasn't going to let anybody in, but that lady, she is awesome. She's in, but nobody else. And everybody else now has to live up to that lady's standard. Raise your hand if you're that lady or guy. Sorry, if you guys have your masculinity challenged here, raise your hand if you're that guy. Listen, listen. Because of Jesus Christ, we have the ability to be at one with God, not because of your own works, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, because millions of people have been crucified, or at least hundreds of thousands, but only one came back from the grave. But you already know the message. The message has been in your ears. It's been on your lips. You've been hearing it your whole life. And the message is simply this. So what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Say it with me. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the so what. But you already knew that. What it takes is Jesus's resurrection being real. So now what are you going to do with what you've heard? There's two things here as I close on this. There's, there's two things that you've got to do with what you've heard. First of all, it takes the look of this. You must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God rose him from the dead and you will be saved. Because you see, Scripture tells us you believe with the heart, but with the mouth, confession is made unto righteousness. It takes both. That means you must hear it, believe it, and say it believing means that in your heart, there's truth that comes out your mouth. You can say things with your mouth that isn't true. Network news, anyone? Magazines in the, in the grocery stores, anyone? Internet news, anyone? People can lie and they do it well. But to believe something in your heart and speak it as truth is what's required of us as people who believe that Jesus is who he said he was. So that's the first thing. And the second one is this. 
Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Here's what it's saying. Act like you believe it. So what? So act like you believe it. Let it transform you. Let it transforms the, transform the belief in your heart and the words of your mouth and the action of your hands and the way that you live your life, the way you treat people around you, the way that you react to God, the way that you react and love people around you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the transforming effect of the gospel. Act like you believe it. What? Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead resurrected himself, overcame death. So what? It means that because of that, it is possible for you to be at peace with God, atoned at one with God in a restored relationship. And now what? Well, now what is this? Do you need to take today and mark it down in your life calendar as the day that you heard the truth of Jesus's resurrection in the gospel and decided today I'm going to believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And maybe today you've heard that message a thousand times. You've even believed it. You've accepted him even as Savior. But you have yet to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you're living a life that is inconsistent with the life Jesus called you to. For some of you, Easter is one of two times a year. You'll breeze into the church and figure you got to check with God. You got that scale kind of tipped real good because you went to church. You might even have put a couple bucks in the bag when it came by. So that scale's like this. You're doing really good. You've really tipped it. Man, you're like heading straight into heaven here pretty soon. But you're basing it on on a silly concept that somehow there's a scale. There's not a scale. There's going to be a simple question. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And have you been transformed by the renewing of your mind?